Well, we've come to the end of our journey in the book of 1 Corinthians. This uh, will be the last section uh, in this study of an epistle that has been so relevant to the church today. Even though it's written uh, two millennia ago, and it's right for us, we've seen that. It's uh, definitely a challenge, I think, to the contemporary church, as well as it was to the Corinthians back at that time, when Paul actually wrote this. What we're going to do today is uh, look at the close of a letter. Uh, but it's not just a few verses that are just thrown together, a you know, mishmash of uh, something here and something there. Hey, tell them uh, you know, that I said hi. And uh, even though it is that, there's much more to it. There, uh, it's more than just scattered con- uh, comments. But we know that Paul writes in context. And even in this, even at the close of a letter, we still have uh, context. And if we remember that last week we closed with a verse that talked about in verse 14, it says, let all that you do be done with love. And that is very fitting for Paul to mention that because the part that we're looking at today is really going to be an illustration of that love. This is love in action. uh, How it actually looked. How it was actually practiced. So love is a precise word that Paul uses and that is definitely the greatest need that fellowship needed in Corinth. Any fellowship has that big need. And uh, the Corinthians, we know, were dominated by their selfish motives. Uh, They're just like anybody else. That's the problem that we battle with. Uh, We have an attitude of selfishness and they needed an attitude of love which really is a sacrificial act Uh, an actual act for others. And so it's good to be able to concentrate on the fact that the whole body of Christ needs to demonstrate uh, the love of Christ to to each other. So when the church does that, then you can kind of give a a really good overview of Corinth. When the church is practicing love, there will not be divisions in the church. And we saw that in chapter 1. Uh, later on, we saw, like in, in chapter 3, it was dealing with carnality. If you are um, doing everything in love, then you will not be carnal. Uh, we know that they were suing each other, right? If they loved each other, they wouldn't have been suing each other. There was immorality there in the church. If they loved each other, they wouldn't have been doing that. The arrogance that was there, the puffed up knowledge that they had. Remember covering all of that? Down through the months and months that we've been... Uh, with this, and we can see that they had even abused the Lord's Supper, abused the gifts that they had given, that they had been in love, like they even had one uh, feast called the Love Feast. But it was really a time of um, kind of gathering up food for yourself and uh, keeping others away from it, where you could have uh, your own little feast and not uh, invite some of the other people. They'll come later. So, anyway. If you have love, you're going to understand that. Even uh, the doctrine of the resurrection uh, is, is another thing, knowing that uh, here is all a part of what God had in mind for them to do. And uh, if they do that, then they would be edifying the other saints. So love is the real issue. That's what Paul is concerned with as he has addressed the Corinthians all along. That's the theme of this book. Matter of fact, a whole chapter was dedicated to this particular subject, love, in chapter 13 as most people are very familiar with that. And so we have it today as we close out, as it was set up from last week, verse 14, let all that you do be done with love. That kind of ties in with God's glory, doesn't it? Everything that you do, you want to give glory to God, right? Well, there it is. That's that's a part of who God is. It's that agape love. There was an obvious absence of this love there So we're going to see this illustration that Paul has and he shows the love and action of some of the saints that uh, they knew that were from Corinth and people that were going to come to visit them. Love is a mark. It's a mark that God loves us and it's a mark of God's people when we uh, practice that. So these sentiments expressed to us here show that um, this is a mark of God's people as they have love for one another. So we're going to look at the marks of love here today. Uh, one of them is going to be starting with what evangelism. Evangelism is uh, actual love. Let's start at verse 15. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, 
and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. So there he starts it off. Here's a good mark. Uh, the final, uh, the first mark of love is that we care about the lost. And we see that there is an urgent time that we live in to getting that great good news, to be heralding, to be preaching the, the, the great good news of the Gospel, that people can be reconciled to a holy God who they have affronted, who they have offended in their sin. They need to see that sin. They need to repent and believe. And of course, it's going to be all of God's power that does that, but we have the news that gets it there. And if it be so, God will take that and then take that heart and change it there. We need to be reminded again and again that without love, our Christianity is worthless. Remember in chapter 13? We can have all the knowledge. We can do this and do that, do great works, but without true love, then uh, it's really absolutely nothing. So love is going to mark somebody in the way that they evangelize. They have a heart for the lost people. They want to demonstrate. Paul went to Corinth after he had been in Athens. And he's in the uh, the Greek area. And he had preached the Gospel in Corinth. We know that he was not received well there at all. A few found it very interesting. But he takes the Gospel now to a city that is very evil and very wicked. And pluralism dominates there. Pluralism means they believe in many gods. Just like they did in Athens, they do in Corinth. And so they need to be persuaded that there is a true God, a singular God, who is a triune God. There's only one God, and His name is Lord. His name is Jesus, Jesus Christ. That's what He's going to preach. So He comes into a city that is not familiar with that. And uh, he is very bold in preaching that. At the same time, he is humbled in the sense he's not going to philosophize like they did, but he's going to give the simple gospel and bring out the truth. If we were to turn to Acts 18, we can see a little bit of the history that happened there in Corinth and how Paul had a love for those Corinthian pagans. That's what they were before he came there. He had a love for them. And he wanted to persuade them. He wanted to reason with them. And he's going to wind up going into the synagogue. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens, went to Corinth. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. In the synagogue, he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's he's showing that Jesus is that Messiah that's promised in the Old Testament. So he's bold in doing that. And that's uh, part of the course. That's how Paul operates. That's the way to do it. That's the usual custom. And as you see the Jews, you're going to see Jesus is preached. And he persuaded many there. And he made Christ very clear to them. Made it who He really was, who this Jesus was. Now, Stephanus and his family were among the very first people in Corinth. Imagine that. A Corinthian and his family are going to come to Christ. Because Paul was faithful in preaching that. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16, you'll see this name pop up as he's talking about baptism here. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. I, no. But I do remember as Stephanus. I remember I baptized him and uh, all the ones in, in my house there. So they're the, among the very first to hear the message and to become Christians. Now the word for household is familia. And that word means not only 
maybe the husband and the wife and, and the kids that also mean slaves and servants and anybody else that was associated or connected with that house. And so who knows how many were in that household, but we see that Paul baptized Stephanus and the people there and they started serving with devotion as we'll be running into verse uh, 2 and, um, and, and on there. Um, Paul knew Stephanus. He knew him very well. Stephanus knew him very well. And so Paul is writing this letter uh, to the Corinthians. And uh, he includes one who's very dear to him. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus. By the way, he's the first fruits of Achaia, that area where they were at, that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Okay, You know him. You know them. They're the first fruits. And when you have first fruits, what does that guarantee? There's more to come. There's a harvest. So he takes an agrarian term, turns it into an evangelism term. Those are the first fruits. Um, Christ is our first fruit. He was the first one resurrected. And then that means there will be more to follow. Right? All of His own people. So this is how evangelism works. Paul comes in there, just gives them what the Gospel is, uh, makes it very clear. Uh, he persuades them. He reasons with them. and says, now look, look at this right here. What does this say here? What does this verse say? What, look, in, look in Isaiah here. Look what he says. And so he goes over it with them and, and they're persuaded. It becomes clear to them all those ones who had been chosen to believe, uh, ordained to believe, they did. Um, so anyway, what happens is you have a whole household, a, a bunch of people that come out of this and they go out and take the Gospel to people and start serving. And that's how the church started. Out of a, you know, a huge city, you'd think, okay, the church would be pretty big, but when he comes in there, there's no church, is there? There is none to start with. This is planting a church. And that's what, uh, what happens. Uh, do you know, do you know, if you have a converted household, right? And what a joy it is. And you do know that. Do you know of converted households? Do you know what the impact they can make? Well, they did here. They devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. So the evangelism by the early church. Okay, we see Paul doing that. If we really loved like Christ loved and like Paul loves, then we'd be always ready to give the defense of the gospel that we so believe in. We'd want to desperately take it out to the ones who are in such great need. And the early church did that. What if they would have failed? Well, God was going to make sure they didn't fail because He's got a church that He's building. But that's what they did. They faithfully did that, just told what happened, told about Christ, what happened to them. Look in 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And He died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. Paul says it's the love of Christ that compels me to get this gospel, this good news to people who are lost and don't know they are. It's the love of Christ that does it. So that's, that's what he did. Um, the early church did that. Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Remember, without ceasing... Your work of faith, this, these are Thessalonians, labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. There he's talking about um, their, their faith, their work of faith. Faith actually works. We don't work for faith, but once we do have the faith that He gives us, then faith actually works. It does those things. Labor of love, so you have faith, love, and patience of hope. Faith, hope, and love. Those right there are in that one verse. Now look at verse 8. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you 
and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's verse 9. That was sitting up the whole thing. Verse 8. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. And that's, you know, they turn from the idols and stuff. So there's conversion, but they take the word of the Lord and sound it forth all around, all over. And you know what that word there, uh, sounded is? It's the word echoed. And if you've ever been in a place where you can shout and be up on a high hill or something and then there's a hill way up over there and you shout and the voice just kind of keeps going on forth, you know. So that's kind of the idea of this word here. It kept on going out. It reverberated. Uh, kind of like what the Romans meant, their witness in Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 8. Romans 1, 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So they were able to uh, to not only believe, but they took that gospel on out. It went everywhere. Sounding forth. That's how the early church went. So the Spirit of God, it produces the love in us, it compels us, and then we take it out. We know that Paul had a heart for the... Um, the Jewish people in Romans 9 for instance you know my heart is and cry out for you oh I I would give myself up so that you could be saved you know that's that kind of thought Romans 9 Romans 10 well the household of Stephanus and the other ones who became believers in Corinth of all places you'd think they'd be scared to take this gospel out there it's a polytheistic type religion there and all sorts of crude kind of living. Lifestyle is terrible there, kind of like the United States. And what does he say? Well, they devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Devoted. Uh, it means to set in order. It means to appoint. It means to assign, to ordain. And it's not like somebody else ordained them to do it or, you know, kind of push them on out, assign them to do it. Hey, you you do this. You do that. It's not the case. Here, we see that they devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. They didn't wait for anybody to tell them to do something. They just did it. And so that's the thought. They served. And the word for devote can also be a word that we're familiar with, addicted. They were addicted. You catch what's happening here? They were they addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Now that's interesting, because now it puts an, another little spin on this. They didn't wait till somebody formed a committee. Somebody maybe told them, or certain leaders told them to do something. They didn't wait until there was an ordination to be doing before they could serve. They didn't wait until they went to seminary. They just went and did it, whatever needed to be done. The issue was not ability here either. It's availability. You know, make yourselves available, right? They just ministered to others. That's, that's how they did it. So They didn't wait to be assigned. They addicted themselves. Now, when you think of an addiction, uh, you think of when one is addicted, then they have to have larger doses. Because the previous amount of doses wasn't enough. So they need more. And then later on they need even more. And they need more. Well, in ministry, they would get something done and they couldn't wait to find something else. And in Corinth, there probably is no problem with finding some other kind of ministry to do. Always. And so that's how uh, addictive they were done. Um, There's also the idea that it's overpowering desire. When you're addicted, you have this desire that's over you. No matter whether you want it or not, it's overpowering. You can't keep from wanting more. It's overpowering. And then a third one is there's a dependence there. It's a characteristic of addiction, right? They must have it to function. They're depending upon this. That's what they did. So this whole family was addicted in Corinth. And not to the things you'd think we would say when we hear that word. 
but they were addicted to serving others, to bringing the gospel, to discipling them, whatever it took. And they were just compelled to do this. They, uh, the more they did for the Lord, the more they wanted to do. So if they, if they took a day off, it probably just drove them crazy. They probably had withdrawal symptoms if they'd take a day or two off. That's about the way I think Paul was, wasn't it? I mean, always looking for that. So that's an idea of devotion. Remember that song back in the 70s? Hopelessly devoted to you. Remember that? Hopelessly devoted. Devoted to serving. Now, the word ministry, that's easy. The word is diakonia, right? Service. If you see a need, you do it. Ministry belongs to everyone. Everybody has a ministry. Wear the garment of humility and just put on your apron to serve, right? Do you ever find yourself addicted to ministry? You can't wait to get to the next opportunity? That's the way the early church seemed to work as we look at here. The other one is, uh, we look at verse 16 now. We've seen uh, what? Evangelism. We've seen this um, whole idea of the the lost and how the early church works and uh, the means for doing this. And we've seen that there is service involved. We can pull that on up there to the next one. We kind of worked into verse 16. Uh, In 15, there's ministry, that's service. 16 now is dealing with submission. That you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Submission. Service. And in service we have devotion. We have ministry. And submission is all involved with um, this whole idea of of service. Spirit-filled. Spirit-filled living. That's, uh, that's submission, isn't it? Do you remember in Ephesians 5? Be filled with the Spirit. And he says singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and you know, <clears throat> building each other up, edifying. And um, then it starts talking about submitting one to another in the church and then submitting in the home as far as the, the kids and the, the wife and uh, the husband... You have love and submission all working together and then submitting at work. Well, that is the pattern, isn't it? The way that God has developed. It's a theme throughout the whole Bible. Um, Even submitting to the government. All the institutions that God has set up, He has that. And uh, you remember, and uh, Peter even talked about it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. It says, And... um, Actually, go to First Peter five five. That's the one. Here we have likewise, you younger peeps, people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the idea of humility is um, very important. We're to be summoned to those who serve. And then submit to them. That you submit to such, everybody's submitting to everybody, to everyone who works and labors with us. And I think there's an idea here also copy, um, imitate the models. Whoever's addicted to serving the Lord, check them out, see the pattern that they have, and say, hey, I want to follow that. And many probably followed how Paul did it, and also this uh, household of uh, Stephanus. And um, they're watching them. And so they follow that. It says, follow this example. I think Paul said that earlier, back in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Watch me. And you can do the same thing. Of course, they're following Christ too, but he says, hey, you know, just uh, take my hand here. So we go along through this ledge. Whatever we're going through, it can help. Chapter uh, 4, verse 16. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you might have all of these, 
Yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the Gospel. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. You know, Paul is the one who had brought in the gospel to them. He's the father of the faith. They might have a lot of teachers, but he says, you know, he wants to make them sure that they they follow along with that. And there are other passages out of Thessalonians and Hebrews and other areas where we are just to kind of follow somebody and see what they're doing right along. So there's the uh, the idea of submission, serving here, and witnessing. None of this sounds really that much different than what it is to be doing things in the church. What's the church to be about, right? Those things. Witnessing. And serving. And submitting. And then he has in verse 17 and 18, the companionship. And he mentions some names here. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. So, do you think Paul went around doing a long range, a lone ranger thing? No, he relied on others. He surrounded himself with people of the Lord. So, when and when certain Christians are around, they refresh you, and you can get tired. You can feel like you're wilting, and then uh, another Christian comes along and. They're all upbeat and everything, and all of a sudden you start to become that way, you know? It's always helpful to have somebody to just kind of encourage you, to lift you up. And that's what Christians are about. That's what they do. All these guys uh, played that role to Paul. You know, he needed people praying for him, he needed help doing this and that. And uh, so he mentions these guys' names. And he says something that's kind of interesting. What does this mean? For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. It sounds like a cut on the Corinthians again. But I don't think so. I don't think Paul is saying that at all. What he's saying now is that, hey, I love you Corinthians, and I'm lacking your presence. Right now I'm not with you, but I have some of the guys that are from Corinth. And so in the meantime, while I don't get the whole bunch of you, I still have Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. And uh, so whatever's lacking in your presence, they help out. I'm enjoying your presence by by these guys. They're they're such a blessing to you. I miss your faces, but uh, I'm sure glad that these guys are here with me. Does that make sense? Uh, What I miss in you, I have in them. That's a beautiful thing that Paul is writing. As he's finishing this letter out, you would have thought he would have just ended up on a sour note, you know. So you guys better get it together. <laughs> He's been saying a lot of that all along, but here he uh, winds up showing his his grace and his love. Uh, I think there are certain people who can inspire us. And uh, you remember the song? I'm reaching back, but uh, you remember the song back in the '60s? You've got a friend, James Taylor, Carol King. You've got a friend. Right? Isn't it good to have a friend? It really is. It's really helpful a lot of times. How about um, how about another song? I'm, I'm drawing these out because uh, I heard I actually heard an Alistair Begg sermon and he brought those songs and I'm going the, the guy's the same age as, as me and Bob. Okay, he's the exact same age as yeah. So he knew all those and he used another and I just kind of laughed when he said that. Like, Why aren't you using Christian songs? Well, sometimes it's kind of neat to take those secular songs and you can see a twist on it and bring it into you know the spiritual end of it. We all need somebody to lean on. And we know we have Christ to lean on. We know He's really the only one. But yet, He sends His people around so that we can lean on them. Sometimes we need to do that. And that's what Paul is saying here. This is the kind of thing. This is a normal thing to need God's people. Man, it's, it's not just something that's made up. This is really part of it. And he says in verse 18, For they refreshed my spirit and yours. These guys had to be encouraging to be around with. Um, that word refreshed is the same kind of meaning that is in Matthew eleven twenty eight, And we all know this verse, but it's very comforting. Sometimes we need verses like this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will refresh you. 
nothing like a refreshing, cool drink of water or Gatorade these days. <laughs> Isn't it great when you've been hot and you're dehydrated and you need something refreshing? Well, that's what we're talking about. When you come to Christ, He's your fresh, cold drink of water. Oh, I need that. Right? That's what Christ is to us. And we would hope that that would be for us today, right? You get a fresh drink. 2 Corinthians 7, 13. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Pastor Titus was refreshed by who? The Corinthians. They refreshed him. He probably had to be worn down, broken. Ever been broken? We're broken people. Man, we need each other. We need somebody to lean on. We've got a friend. We've got a lot of friends, right? Christian brothers and sisters. If we would focus on those kind of things, sometimes if we think about being refreshed, and it takes somebody sometimes to kick us back into that mode because we can really be down. Things aren't looking good. The future doesn't look good. The past week hasn't been good. It doesn't look good now. You know what? Oh, man, I'll tell you what. Our emotions are just lying to us and all of a sudden we're feeding off of that kind of stuff. And if we can get somebody to come in and refresh us, now our mind starts thinking correctly. Somebody refreshes us and it's much better to hear about refreshing praise reports. I know that prayer needs to be bringing in all the needs out there and we need to know that. We don't want to stop that. But isn't it nice when somebody says, hey, is it okay if I give you a praise report? And everybody goes, yeah. I mean, you've been hearing all the health that people have that's really bad and, and or somebody has, you know, is really in dire need of whatever... Terrible circumstances, and then somebody just stands up. Hey, I got a, I got a fresh praise report, and everybody's, oh yeah, cool breeze on hot day. Can we identify with that? We sure can. Hey, there was a little cool breeze of a morning lately. It, it, we know it's not going to last long, but that right there in itself helps, doesn't it? A cool breeze on hot day as the days start in the 80s. Right? That's right. It's so fresh. Take it in, right? And that's what that's what uh, other Christians are about. Oh, it's, oh maybe uh, if we could be more, if we could think, hey, I want to be a refreshment to people, rather than trying to drag them down. Or if you have been dragged down, then you need somebody. But try to think, hey, I, I want to be rejoicing. You know, Paul knew what it was to be refreshed by a companion. Boy, there were many times where he had to be refreshed. Now, here's the question: Do people rejoice in our presence? When we ring the doorbell, <laughs> I don't know how many people go up to somebody's house and people don't do it anymore, I don't think, but just go up there and just make a surprise visit. Do, um, do they start diving behind the couch? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, do they rejoice in our presence? Are, are we glad to, to, to see? You know, are people glad to see us? We, we want to kind of be that way if we can. Anyway, verse 18 now. We're back to our Corinthians. May refresh my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. We'll move on to the fourth one. Right here at the end of verse 18. Here's another thing that love does. Not only witnessing, not only serving, not only submitting, not only companionship, but recognition. It's to, to recognize others. Now, we're not going, supposed to go around trying to seek recognition. That's not the idea. We're to give it to people. To recognize others who serve the Lord. Say, hey, I thank, thank the Lord for you for you know, doing that. That's a lot. I said, that's nothing. It's a big deal. It's all for the Lord. But it's, it's really encouraging when somebody does notice that. It helps. Saying, hey, uh, but, you know, it's, it's a good thing. But we don't have to go around begging for that. Um, 
Sometimes you don't get it. Don't worry about it. It's okay, but it sure is nice. right? Verse uh, 29 of uh, Philippians 2. Receive Him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem. Now here he's talking about Epaphroditus. Oh man, he was a worker in the Lord. And uh, even to the point of uh, sickness and, and death. That's how far he took this addiction of serving <laughs> to the point of death. And he says, hey, and by the way, Philippians, uh, all of his, because he is close to death, um, re- remember that. Uh, hold him in esteem. When, when you see him, when he comes there, you receive him. And I'm sure they're probably going to do that. But sometimes it's nice to be reminded, oh yeah, that's right. You remember what he did? Boy, isn't it great to, to be recognized by Third John chapter 12. Back to verse 12. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness and you know that our testimony is true. So there's recognition to this Demetrius and his testimony. About First Thessalonians chapter 5. Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. Chapter 5, verse 12. We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love. There's that word again. For their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Tack on a lot of things there, but they're all following one after another. Look in verse 17. Yeah, did we read that? Yeah, pray without ceasing. Right? And everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So there's part of the uh, all dealing with the recognition of people. There's a, another one, a mark of love. It's hospitality. As we're in the uh, last of this letter. And we see this in verse 19 and 20. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla. They greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Quillo and Priscilla. They were Christians who were Jews, still Jewish, but they're now Christians, but they had been in Rome. And when they were in Rome, everything was going pretty good, and all of a sudden, the uh, emperor there said, Out with the Jews. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? I understand our president is uh, taking that kind of stand and it's uh, becoming close to official that uh, we are saying out with the Jews. If you look at history, if you just look at history, you'll see every country that has turned their back on the sense of even praying for these people, having any kind of help for them at all. Um, You can look at Spain, you can look at uh, any parts of Europe, anybody has done that. Uh, you'll notice very shortly that um, it's almost like a curse happens. That nation goes down the hill. England did that. And uh, a great nation within a few short years, um, they started going down the hill. It's just uh, kind of history. It's kind of interesting to see. Uh, they were Jews have always been expelled all over the world, all over the, uh, for the last 2,000 years. They were chased out. They were tent makers. They went to Corinth. They moved to Corinth, lived there. Paul comes along, and I have to imagine, maybe it's something like this. Hey, this guy's just now become a new Christian. And he says, uh, you know, uh, Paul, I know some people who do the same thing you do. And um, you guys need to meet up. Who knows how they met up, but whatever it was, Maybe somebody helped bring them together. Um, big city, everything all spread out. And now you've got uh, the church coming together. And then when Paul and Aquila and Priscilla met up, man, things really started happening. 
they worked together, they served together. When Paul left Corinth and went to Ephesus, and that's kind of a pattern there, they went with him. They were kind of tied with him. They packed up and went with Paul also, these tent makers. Now, they are with Paul, and Paul says they greet you heartily in the Lord as he's finishing up this letter. He's saying, you guys know them well. Uh, Well, they're here with me and they're greeting you heartily. And uh, by by the way, he says, with the church that is in their house. That's interesting to see, isn't it? Um, We know that the early church met in homes. It first was at the temple. And um, then as it broadened out... um, that was a little more difficult to worship as the church there because most of the people weren't converted even though you had thousands converted uh, at an early time as they're moving on out you still have that but uh, here you have a husband and wife team at their house and they're teaching the word of God it's kind of interesting to look back on on the history and how the church developed you look in Acts 2.46 So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God. So daily they were meeting either at the temple or they were meeting at each other's homes, different places. And so that's what was going on very, very early. Advanced chapter 5, verse 42. And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They made a great witnessing tool as they would be right there at the temple preaching, hey, this, this, must, this Jesus that was lived here, he, you know, he resurrected after uh, you killed him. So they were still preaching that message. And we go to chapter 10, verse 23. Time moves on. Then he invited them in and lodged them. This happens to be with Cornelius the centurion. And um, there we're now getting into the uh, Gentile area, and Peter is there. And they are, Peter's actually staying there, and he actually taught these people that were there at Cornelius, uh, Cornelius' house. So another one goes on. You look in chapter 20, verse 7. Now the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. You know this story, right? He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down before the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread, and he... (laughs) I mean, the guy comes right back to life, and he just goes right on back up there. They break bread, and uh, they talk a long while, even till daybreak he departed. They brought the young man in alive, and they were not, uh, not a little comforted much comforting. What a story there. They were at this place and had an upper room. Somebody's house, a meeting place there. And he preached and preached and preached and they couldn't preach enough and he just kept preaching. Acts 28, verse 23. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. There he has some kind of lodging, Paul does. He had been in prison, and uh, now it's like um, he's been put into a, um, another place like a house, wherever he's staying there. People are coming, and he's explaining the gospel, persuading them. Taking the law, taking the prophets, preaching all day long. Preaching and teaching the Word of God. So wherever. They met in different places, didn't they? And so we have this couple meeting in their home. They open up their home. Church meets there. Paul probably even lived with them there as he had made tents. Doesn't ever tell us that. 
I'm just maybe reading into the text, but it would make sense that he probably stayed with them. Uh, They moved several times, and often they moved with Paul. So quite the traveling companions they were. And so quite the hospitality uh, that Aquila and Priscilla did. So I think it's quite a lesson for us all. Um, Are we willing to give up a big part of our lives where things are very comfortable in serving the Lord and sometimes it can even mean opening up your home to uh, to a church, to, to people, whatever, or having people stay over and all sorts of different things there. I think there's quite a lesson in that. It's a good thing. Boy, that's showing love, isn't it? Now, um, another part of this is um, the affection. It says, greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation was with my own hand, Paul's. Um, holy, uh, holy kiss. Everybody always makes, we can make a little joke here, you know. <laughs> but this, this is actually, we know the, what the culture is there at that time. And so it was, that was the thing that people did rather than you can think of, you know, grabbing them and maybe we do hugs sometimes. Sometimes we pat each other on the back or we shake hands. And it's just showing, hey, you know, um, we deal with each other and uh, we want to show that, hey, we, you know, we have an affectionate affection for these people when we deal with that. It, it was a sentiment. It was a custom of the day whenever they would uh, do the, the holy kiss. That's a set of heart kiss holy is it's dealing with the whole fellowship and being in Christ and God so everything that we do is set apart isn't it and um, so people on the streets may even do that too that weren't even Christians but this is the, the kind of holy kiss that he's talking about uh, it, would, it would show to people that they really have that kind of thing going on that affection The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. He didn't write this whole letter himself. He had somebody else writing it. But he writes the end of it. We know other times when he wrote a letter, it would be in big letters. Could have been other reasons for it, reasons for that. Some said his eyesight. Others said, you know, he had arthritis and go on and on with it. Who knows? But he finishes it as uh, himself as uh, he brings out the, the last words. And he says in 22, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Oh, Lord, come. Or Maranatha or Maranatha. If you don't have an affection towards the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought to be anathema. That's the idea. You ought to be cursed if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ. And please... We know some of the people that were probably not even real in Corinth, and they were even saying that Jesus Christ is accursed. You know those kind of things. When we started looking in was it chapter twelve, I believe. Um, uh, if we have affection for others, then we certainly have affection for Christ, right? That, that's a mark of a, being a child of God, having the affection for Him. If the uh, thoughts of Christ and all that He has done for us and all that He means to us, oh, you know, at at, uh, at any moment in time, we can see that yes, I I love Him, and you can say, well, I don't know if I I can really say I really truly love Him, but you remember that He is the one that puts the love in us so we can love Him, and maybe we haven't been dwelling on that particular thought at the time, but if if you are the Lord's, you do love Him. You love Him because you start thinking of all that He's done for you. And if He doesn't stir up the very embers there and, and get those glowing, then you really have to uh, wonder. You know, certain people may not be saved at all if they did not have any kind of love for Christ. Right? I mean, they can do great things and they can do things for other people, but if they don't have that kind of love for Him, which they're in the Corinthian church, there might have been some that really did not love Him. And so He kind of gives a, a warning there, doesn't He? A, a curse. And then He says, Moranatha, our Lord is coming. That's a good way to pretty well end a letter, isn't it? 
He's coming for judgment as a warning there. And He's also coming for us for glory. If you're Christians, that's what keeps us going every day, doesn't it? Grace and love, it can overcome and conquer anything as we look at verse 23, as we finish this letter out now. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Grace and love. There is the conquering element every time. He started in grace. And you remember, you you saw them being in Christ, sanctified saints of God, and He's ending with this same grace. The same love that uh, conquers this whole kind of conflict that we have. And it's always there. The very love and grace of Christ. Isn't it wonderful that he ends this letter with a note that he had actually began with? Look in verse 14. Let all that you do be done with love. That is what Paul is really about. Oh, the kind of love that um, has just been seen in every one of these elements that uh, we have looked at. Whether it be um, evangelism, service, Submission, companionship, recognition of people, hospitality, affection for them, and then those words, those encouraging words. Maranatha, our Lord is coming. He's coming for His people. He's coming for you. And He will put to right every wrong that has been done. He will heal every wound that we have. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And He will make all things new. That's what keeps us going. You'll notice that Paul constantly always has the coming of Christ before us. Because we go through a daily walk that is really hard and everybody goes through different things. But when we keep that in mind, it keeps us striving. Can you say that? We're on a Right? Everybody remembers the Maranatha singers. Our Lord comes. That encourages us, doesn't it? Grace, love, peace in Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.